Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Josh Molinite from Chatham University. Today, I am talking to Daniel Jaffe, the author of Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and for Water Justice, published by the University of California Press. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joshua. It's great to be here. So to start, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and um, a bit about where you got the inspiration for this book? Absolutely. Uh, I am uh, an environmental sociologist and also a rural sociologist. Um, For quite a while, I have been very interested in questions of the impact of uh, macro-level policies and forces like neoliberal economic globalization, um, so-called free trade policies, et cetera, on uh, conditions for local communities, their livelihoods, uh, and the impact on local environments. And um, some of my earlier work looked at uh, responses to that in terms of, uh, I looked at the fair trade movement, uh, attempting to uh, redress unfair terms of trade in the global coffee market. And um, more recently, I've turned my focus on uh, social conflict or social contestation over uh, common goods and particularly water. So I've been interested in in, uh, social struggles that have been taking place around the world uh, when uh, water is privatized or commodified. And uh, in particular, sort of what are the terms of those uh, struggles? Uh, How do movements get mobilized? Uh, How do they understand the local water uh, that they are interested in protecting, what's their relationship uh, to water, um, and uh, what are the results of these struggles. And then probably for about the past 10 or 13 years, I've looked in particular at bottled water, which I think is turns out to be um, an important and sometimes under-recognized facet of the process of the commodification or the privatization of fresh water on a global scale. Um, People may be more aware of the struggles around the privatization of public tap water supplies in many parts of the world. Uh, For example, the water wars in Bolivia in the early part of the 2000s over proposals to privatize uh, public water systems. Uh, But it turns out that the bottled water industry has been growing faster uh, is more successful. And uh, I think it's pretty clear that within uh, one to two decades, we'll surpass that private water services market as the most important and largest um, facet of private water. And so I have been very interested in uh, what's happening and what kinds of struggles does that unleash? That's where the inspiration for the book came. And as I began to look deeper into these um, local and national and international uh, struggles, I tried in the book to sort of get a handle on what are the social movements, particularly in North America, but also around the world, what are the social movements that are um, organizing to challenge the growth of this product, this commodity, plastic, in particular, single-use plastic bottled water, how are they talking about it? Where are the sites that this is happening? And I talk about sort of two facets to these movements. One is uh, at the extraction end, and it sort of makes obvious sense, right? The places where water is, groundwater is being extracted by bottled water companies, by beverage companies, by the, the industry, or sites of proposed bottling facilities, water extraction facilities. And um, those are typically rural locations, uh, both, you know, I talk both here about uh, in the U.S. and in Canada, uh, but also elsewhere in the world. And um, the second facet is 
struggles around the consumption of bottled water, the growth of this commodity, and its relationship to sort of the fate of public tap water. Uh, tap water is uh, overwhelmingly a public enterprise in much of the world, most of the world. The U.S. and Canada, nearly 90% of people get their drinking water from a public local government water utility. So it is a function of uh, the public sector and the relationship between uh, the growth of this product, um, the normalization of it as uh, as a form of getting drinking water, uh, and the, the future and the fate of high-quality public drinking water supplies. So those are some of the questions that underlie the book. And I sort of start the introduction with a, just a personal anecdote where I say I'm old enough now to uh, you know, confess that when I was a kid growing up in grade school, uh, you know, 1980s, uh, bottled water was a, not really a, a phenomenon. It, the Americans consumed two gallons per capita on average. Uh, it was Perrier and heavy glass bottles and uh, a, a kind of an odd luxury good. And I think many people would not have been able to imagine the world that we have today where uh, uh, there is a $300 billion industry around bottled water, a global industry um, dominated by, uh, led by some of the world's largest uh, food and beverage corporations, uh, where nine, nearly nine in 10 people in the U.S. consume some bottled water, and a fifth of the population in this country gets all of its plain water from bottles and eschews or, or uh, avoids the tap entirely for drinking. That's a riddle. What makes that happen in places with largely, largely the ability to count on safe, reliable tap water 24-7. So those are some of the questions that uh, that inspired me to write the book and that kind of underlied the, the book project. Yeah, and, uh, you know, thinking about it, packaged water does seem ubiquitous. Um, it's, it's everywhere, kind of an unavoidable uh, facet of life. Um, you know, when I lived in, in South America packaged water was the water, right? Like you didn't drink anything but packaged water. Um, and even here now, you know, in sort of the, I, some of the richest parts of the world, it, that still seems to be the case for a lot of people. But at the same time, in both of those contexts, it seems there are more and more people who are aware of these environmental issues, both in terms of the packaging itself and also the extraction. And so I'm wondering, you know, if you could talk a little bit about where that, where you see that that contradiction coming from, right? That there are more people who are aware about these environmental issues, and then at the same time, a growth in consumption. It's a complex picture, uh, especially looked at in a in a global context. So, um, you mentioned uh, uh, Latin America, and we can certainly, you know, I want to sort of say right at the beginning, and I do acknowledge this in the book, that there is a a very different set of issues involved when we are looking at the causes and the um, drivers for the uh, widespread use of this product in settings where clean, uh, potable tap water is not uh, reliable uh, and widespread or or dependable. Um, and so in, in many parts of the global south, in uh, cities, peri-urban areas, in many cases, um, it, even if even where tap water is widely available, uh, tap water supplies may not be safe. They may not be uh, reliable. They may be treated to safety, but uh, contaminated in transit or contaminated in the home. And um, in large parts of, uh, of urban areas in the South, for example, consistent supply is the real problem, right? So rationing of water means that people can't count on water flowing out of the taps. And all these things combine to create situations of water insecurity. And that has really... Um, that combined with the fact that uh, many states, many governments in um, in the global South, because of the legacy of uh, because of the legacies of colonialism, because of the colonial patterns of infrastructure development that privileged uh, the tiny city centers, um, because of debt uh, burdens attached to structural adjustment and the conditions placed on debt renegotiation because of the extraction of wealth uh, from the South, many governments uh, in, in Southern uh, states, even where the political will exists, are 
are unable to sort of extend water systems sufficiently to meet the needs of urbanizing growing populations uh, or to maintain systems sufficiently to the point where they provide reliable tap water. And, uh, uh, and so as a result, uh, increasingly the packaged water industry and I use that term, you use that term as well. It sort of captures the broader form, the broader range of forms that a private uh, uh, water comes in. So these ubiquitous 20 liter, five gallon jugs. Uh, I do a lot of research in Mexico. We see them um, 80 to 90% of the population relies on those uh, those jugs for uh, drinking water supply. And so they have spread and the industry has been sort of happy to fill that gap um, both large corporations, large branded water, um, the four leading firms worldwide are household names, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, uh, Nestle, uh, Dannon Group. Uh, they have their branded water, but also there's an entire stratum and more attention has been being paid now to this refill water or micro treatment segment, uh, sort of a more affordable uh, water that working class and poor residents rely on in many cases, bring your own jug to be refilled with water filtered, taken from the public supply and then further filtered, or perhaps taken from surface water. Um, quality uh, treatment are variable. So those circumstances are very different. And I think there we've got a real conundrum of needing to look at the, at the, at the causes and the reasons, the impediments to the ability of um, states and governments in the global south to uh, extend water service, tap water service to uh, to, to populations. Um, and I point out that looking forward, I think we there is a, a, an enormous sort of struggle here over um, whether that is going to be deemed an acceptable mode of provision for a large swath of humanity um, going forward. There is a struggle over the definition of uh, improved water sources within the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals. One of the development goals, Sustainable Development Goal 6, talks about improving access or creating universal access to, uh, to safe drinking water. Um, controversially, in 2017, there was a redefinition of the forms of a so-called improved water source to, for the first time, include packaged water that allows governments now to count the availability of packaged water toward their meeting the goals uh, for that sustainable development goal. That's a pretty major change. It is a change that is beneficial to the packaged water industry. It's also a change that allows governments to essentially meet some of these goals without uh, significant additional spending on infrastructure. Uh, and so I sort of problematize that. Now, turning to the, um, the US, Canada, Global North, uh, settings where substantial proportion of the population has access to reliable, uh, safe tap water, we also have struggles around uh, the gap, an increasing gap between uh, the clean water or safe water haves and have nots. And uh, one of the things that I argue in the book is that bottled water, the presence of it, but particularly situations where people are having to depend on bottled water uh, is a marker of, or a signifier of water injustice. And if you think about the um, very public, very uh, widely publicized uh, struggles around uh, unsafe tap water in parts of the U.S., the Flint disaster, um, the ongoing uh, crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, and many other parts of the country uh, where, regrettably, there are problems with uh, accessing safe tap water, um, what you see is a troubling pattern. The vast majority of tap water in the U.S., for example, uh, 92 93%, of utilities never have a, a drinking water safety violation any one year, but seven or eight percent do. And those water safety problems are not evenly or randomly distributed. They're overwhelmingly concentrated in uh, low income communities and communities of color, particularly black and Latino households, rural areas with um, groundwater contamination problems, 
uh, agricultural runoff, uh, and some older cities with aging pipes, um, even where uh, lead lined service water service lines have been replaced. Um, older buildings can contain lead in, in piping, and that can become a real problem. And uh, so the patterns, paradoxically, and perhaps counterintuitively, um, while the traditional story or the traditional understanding of who consumes bottled water has been that it's a discretionary good consumed more by people with higher incomes, that actually turns out not to be the case, at least recently here in the U.S. And in fact, bottled water consumption uh, concerns and uh, fears about tap water safety and spending on bottled and packaged water are all um, inversely correlated with income. It is uh, low income um, and uh, Black and Latino and Latina families who overwhelmingly are spending uh, the most on bottled and packaged water in the U.S. distrust their tap water at higher levels. And I think we have to really reckon with how this maps onto uh, the U.S.'s history of um, systemic racism and sort of infrastructural neglect. So rather than sort of talking about people misperceiving, uh, it, I think it's important to sort of see this as a signifier of a water justice problem. And um, I say that in places like Flint, like Jackson, like parts of California's San Joaquin Valley, where um, smaller communities, rural communities, predominantly Latino communities, um, relying on groundwater have unsafe water, while larger communities nearby have well-treated water. All of the places where people are forced to um, depend day after day on bottled water, um, that dependency um, is a signifier uh, of, uh, of of water injustice and an, and a flag really that the the human right to water a right that was declared formally by the United Nations only just back in 2010 uh, that that right is being abridged or denied or not met. Now you also talked about sort of the environmental backlash against the growth of single use plastic bottled water, and I'll mention that, it's probably worth getting a handle on how big this phenomenon is. So uh, it bottled water, packaged water is the most consumed beverage in the world. Um, 120 billion gallons were consumed, the last statistic I have for 2021. So because it's the most consumed packaged beverage, it's also responsible for the biggest share of the plastic waste that is generated by those single-use plastic bottles. And we're talking somewhere in the order of 600 to 700 billion of them consumed and disposed of every year. Uh, recycling rates are quite low for those bottles. The U.S. plastic bottle recycling rate is 26%. Global bottle recycling rate is only 9%. And just an enormous amount of that waste does enter the marine environment. It goes onto land. It is sometimes incinerated. Um, and it turns out that bottle waste, plastic bottles, and their caps are the number one marine garbage item in one study. Um, another study calculated that they're 50% of all um, marine garbage. Uh, so it's an enormous, enormous uh, problem. And then I talk about how in 2018, uh, there was a development that actually explains, I think, a lot of the backlash, the recent backlash that you're describing, which was China's momentous decision to refuse further imports of plastic waste from uh, the rest of the world, a, a policy they called national sword. And that has sort of forced this waste to sort of back up into uh, uh, the global north, into, into uh, uh, forcing governments, local governments to sort of suddenly reckon, reckon with and find markets for these products. And it really illustrates the idea that there's no away when it comes to waste. And um, a lot of folks who were, you know, accustomed to diligently separating and washing their recyclables are now sort of disillusioned or confused because uh, some municipalities were not accepting them. Um, this, I think, has sort of highly energized that uh, anti-single plastics movement. Uh, and I talk about how the the movements around bottled water, uh, environmentally oriented in particular, uh, 
have sort of merged with the movements around single-use plastic to create, I think, a lot of energy and a lot of synergy. And you're seeing sort of um, a lot of activity at the level of local governments, public institutions, private institutions. And, and we can talk about that a little more later on. That's a facet of the movement I call the reclaiming the tap movement. But um, in terms of the backlash uh, or the reaction against bottled water, yes. And so particularly in uh, parts of the global north and particularly among young folks, uh, Generation Z, uh, millennials, um, there is dramatically rising interest in uh, uh, refilling, uh, carrying refillable bottles, uh, rejection of plastics, and uh, uh, the growing refilling movement with smartphone apps that can help you find you know, hundreds of thousands of refilling points uh, in, in your city and around the world. And uh, that uh, has also really intersected with the climate justice movement, I think, that uh, has been growing dramatically. And so uh, because of bottled water's significant uh, uh, energy and, and climate impacts, right? It's uh, studies show that it's one to bottled water, uh, its energy impact is one to 2,000 times more than the equivalent volume of tap water, sort of liter per liter. Um, and another study estimated that bottled water's plastic bottled water's total environmental impact is between 1,400 and 3,500 times greater per liter uh, than tap water. So really significant uh, energy and climate impacts. And um, that is contributing to a backlash and to a rejection among certain portions of the population uh, of this product and a return to and a dramatically growing interest in sort of revalorizing or, or reclaiming tap water. And that backlash has actually begun to catch the attention of the industry. They are starting to see it as a threat to sales growth. Um, and uh, in certain countries in the global north, parts of Western Europe, Canada, and then very recently, even the U.S., growth is uh, has begun to slow or even stall out entirely. Uh, so I think we're in an interesting moment where we simultaneously have uh, a rejection of single-use plastics and, a, and a, a, an, an insistence on a return to tap water among uh, certain generations and um, people in places where tap water is reliably safe, and then uh, an increasingly uh, dramatic uh, water injustice problem um, a water affordability problem here in the United States, which I haven't even mentioned. <clears throat> um, and I think we really are kind of at risk of entrenching a kind of a two-tier drinking water society where um, wealthy and predominantly white uh, people in the U.S. are increasingly rejecting bottled water and turning back to the tap. And uh, low-income uh, people and communities of color who are reading, I think, rationally reading the uneven distribution of risks to tap water are um, uh, uh, expressing fears about the tap and are consuming uh, bottle and package water in uh, in higher and sometimes much higher amounts. And um, their higher spending on bottled water uh, is, uh, I think, exacerbating already enormous uh, class and racial inequality here in the U.S. It is sort of exacerbating that inequality. Uh, and I think it's particularly uh, significant injustice when you have people in places where they have to be dependent uh, or they are dependent on bottled or packaged water to avoid an, uh, a, a demonstrably unsafe water source. Or like 15 million Americans every year because their water service has been shut off to their house for non-payment of, of water bills because they've gotten behind on water bills because of, of, of debt from water poverty. Uh, 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 water bills are rising extremely dramatically, doubled essentially in many cities over the past decade. Uh, and many uh, folks are no longer able to afford uh, water bills. Those situations, I think we can talk about uh, uh, significant injustice uh, and that uh, really it's only going to be, and this is jumping ahead sort of to solutions, but it's only going to be by 
uh, reinvesting in uh, uh, maintaining, managing, improving uh, treatment and water infrastructure, speaking about the U.S. in particular, it's only by significantly reinvesting that we're going to be able to sort of um, stop this stop this problem, address the inequalities, and bring drinking water infrastructure and water quality back up to an extremely high level for everybody. Uh, and I think that's that's really imperative. Yeah, and one of the things that you do really well in the book, a kind of thing that I love is with the best of sort of classic political ecology is you you look at this global political economy, this global system of governance, the the sort of global capitalist milieu in which this is happening, but it's not abstract. You bring it back down to these cases. And so you mentioned Flint and you, there's a, a chapter on Flint and you also talked about Jackson and I, you know, we can think of other places like, like Newark and where these infrastructure issues are really kind of still driving and at the forefront. Um, you have another infrastructure piece in there as well with the Cascade Locks uh, project. Can you tell me or tell us a bit about that? Sure. So that's a, another facet of the book. Uh, so I sort of begin the first third of the book is some of the material that I've just been talking about. And then uh, I sort of move to look at uh, Flint and how bottled water sort of entering into the the conflict there and the the complex relationship and how the folks uh, in 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 Flint and across Michigan have drawn surprising and fascinating connections between um, the extraction of groundwater by the bottled water industry in part rural parts of western Michigan. Uh, uh, in that case, Nestle's uh, uh, extraction of water and the water justice crisis in Flint, the crisis of water service shutoffs in Detroit, and there has sort of merged out of it a, a really exciting and I think fascinating statewide coalition that is making the connections between those issues. And in some cases, it's the physically the same water, the bottles being filled by the water extracted in Western Michigan that uh, at the time it was Nestle's water. Nestle has since sold uh, its North American holdings, but it was being transported across Michigan and was the very same water that was being distributed uh, during the Flint crisis uh, by uh, either the state government or by uh, the company uh, to the residents whose water was unsafe to drink. So those sorts of connections uh, are, are fascinating. Uh, and then I turn after that to sort of look at the history of uh, the origin of movements challenging the commodity of bottled water, uh, which really goes back to the turn of the century. Uh, and I'll, I'll say more about that reclaiming the tap facet maybe afterwards, but you've asked about struggles around the extraction of groundwater. A lot of this water, oh, maybe the best place to start is to say, where does this water come from? In the US, nearly two thirds of the bottled water on sale in stores actually is taken from public water supplies. It's taken from tap water, uh, <laughs> extracted from the pipes, uh, refiltered, um, the minerals are stripped out, uh, companies add in their own proprietary mineral mix so that, for example, Aquafina tastes the same in Florida as it does in Pennsylvania, as it does in Oregon. Um, and uh, so a lot of that is, uh, the bulk of it is tap water, but a bit more than a third does come from groundwater. And, and, and a bit more, and on a global level, it's a bit higher. Um, and the majority in some places like uh, parts of Europe and, and Canada comes from groundwater and springs. And so that those are different issues. And those are very particular, very specific places in, in real places with real people in real communities um, where water is being uh, either proposed to be extracted or extracted from uh, from aquifers and, and springs. And those proposals or those ongoing sites of extraction uh, have generated very interesting, very particular kinds of local struggles. And in the book, I sort of spend two chapters looking in depth, kind of ethnic, an ethnographic description or stories of two of these struggles. The first is uh, took place uh, just up the road from me here in Oregon, uh, in the 
very, very scenic Columbia River Gorge, beginning really at the, gosh, back in 2008, uh, when uh, Nestle, uh, at the time the largest bottled water company in the U.S., proposed a high-volume bottling plant uh, that would have used uh spring water from an, a spring that happened to be owned by the state of Oregon, used for a fish hatchery. And this set off uh, what I call it, it was a decade long, uh, uh, essentially a decade long struggle uh, over this, which involved a constellation of different actors from state agencies to local government officials to uh, different governors getting involved. And then in terms of opposition, uh, a sort of a suite of different coalitions were formed initially sort of a statewide set of, uh, groups, uh, groups you might think of as typically being involved in these struggles, environmental organizations, water justice groups, food and water watch was big here. Um, the Sierra club was involved, local forest groups, et cetera, river groups. And then, um, what happened here in uh, Cascade Locks as this struggle sort of dragged on, went through a legal process, um, and, and took quite a long time, uh, I write that in 2015, surprisingly, sort of water caught fire and this kind of in the background, kind of slow moving uh struggle that had been in the realm of the legal and the political suddenly exploded onto uh, the front pages and onto TV news. Uh, and a few things explain that one Oregon entered and much of the Western U S entered into severe drought that year um, Two, uh, the companies and the state agencies um, apparently sort of got tired of going through the very laborious, very uh, elaborate process of um, transferring water, uh, getting approvals, dealing with public opposition and transferring the water. Um, it was a complex water exchange that would have sort of allowed Nestle to have access to the, the state-owned spring water. And they attempted to change the process, put it on a fast track that would have eliminated the public interest review component. And um, a whole new slew of opponents sort of emerged at that point, uh, particularly local residents in um, both the town of Cascade Locks, very small, former mill town, uh, hard hit, high unemployment rate at the beginning of this uh, struggle with local officials and many, many of the residents, the majority of the residents, um, per- favoring the proposal, uh, certainly in the in the earlier years, uh, but also from the neighboring community of Hood River. And it sort of emerged uh, and became a much more substantial issue. And the third ingredient was that... Um, the four Columbia River tribes um, became involved, seeing the proposal as a threat to salmon, to treaty rights, to their treaty rights, to uh, to salmon in the Columbia River. And um, both individual indigenous activists and uh, tribal governments got involved in opposing it in, in different ways. And it all culminated in 2016 in a ballot measure being placed on the ballot in the county uh, a ballot measure campaign received a lot of attention, uh, hard fought, and uh, essentially uh, the ballot measure would ban b- water bottling entirely in the county. And it passed overwhelmingly by some, nearly 70% uh, in favor. Uh, it took another couple of years uh, to for this to sort of resolve because state officials uh, and local officials uh, were adamant about pushing ahead uh, regardless of the outcome of the vote, but eventually the governor of Oregon did cancel this proposal. What I say is that what began as a kind of a classic uh, environmental struggle over a proposed industrial site, extraction of a natural resource, uh, transformed over time into something far more complex, far more diverse, much more grassroots and local, uh, and uh, really, I think, uh, became a fascinating way to sort of understand people's relationship to local water. And what happened in the campaign around the ballot measure was uh, some fascinating and unlikely allies or bedfellows were, were formed. The coalition in favor of the ballot measure included a whole lot of local business people in a fairly conservative county. Um, 
uh, orchardists uh, concerned about having access to water for their high value uh, fruit crops, uh, small business people, um, uh, indigenous uh, communities, um, and recreationalists, uh, uh, a big recreation area. So uh, I talk in the book about some of the lessons from uh, from this particular uh, struggle, and then I move on to the second story in the following chapter, which is a somewhat similar, uh, but also very, very unique uh, conflict that has played out in uh, Ontario, Canada, in the southwestern tip of Ontario, a place called Wellington County, where uh, the biggest water bottling plant in Canada is located, uh, at the time owned by Nestle Waters. Now it mentioned that Nestle had sold its North American brands and bottling plants to a private equity venture, which is operating under the name Blue Triton. Uh, But at the time, it was still owned uh, by Nestle and community groups there uh, mobilized against the expansion of Nestle's ongoing uh, water pumping. Um, Sort of a similar profile at the beginning, very grassroots, very locally led, strong environmental interest, uh, uh, an attempt to forestall an expansion of water pumping to a new site. Oftentimes these bottling plants then also rely on water that's trucked from nearby sites. One is 50 kilometers away and um, uh, look in detail at kind of the texture of the the opposition. And uh, there too, this struggle over time uh, has become far more interesting, I think far more diverse as it has expanded to incorporate different concerns, in particular a fascinating alliance between um, the primary water advocacy groups, water watchers, and Save Our Water, and um, indigenous activists and traditional leaders in the Six Nations First Nation, a little bit south of Nestle's pumping site, uh, that kind of has transformed this into a struggle that has uh, much stronger uh, emphasis and inflections on water justice and social injustice. Um, Many may be aware of of a a dramatic and ongoing crisis of water water, uh, insecurity and water uh, problems with access to, to clean water in First Nations, Indigenous communities in Canada, as well as in, in the U.S., uh, and uh, uh, the uh, activists there have sort of mobilized around the fact um, that only something like nine percent of the residents of the Six Nations First Nation have access to clean piped tap water, while in the surrounding uh, predominantly white settler communities, uh, clean tap water was nearly universal, and that has become, I think, one of the one of the flashpoints and one of the very interesting elements. So that's a taste of those two conflicts and the response to them. Um, And I try to sort of look at some contrasts and some parallels and uh, look at some of the lessons that, uh, that can be drawn from, from both of those struggles. Yeah. And that's a a great sort of lead into what I wanted to, to ask you about next and something that you've you've kind of mentioned a, a couple times this is a a book that could very easily have left one feeling with doom or dread because of the the topic and it doesn't um because you're you're able to give so much space to these different movements to sort of protect and expand access to clean water and in a variety of ways and a variety of meetings of what it means to have clean water. And so I was wondering if you can, and can talk about these movements a little bit and, and some of the successes that they've had, even, you know, beyond the, the ones you just mentioned. I, one of the best things about researching and writing this book was, uh, you know, among the, the very bleak news that we get on a regular basis in, in both the environmental and the social uh, justice realms, I found um, both hope and, um, and success in these stories. These uh, movements, uh, there's a range of movements, are actually uh, uh, achieving some surprising successes. Um, the challenges around the sites of bottled water extraction um, 
have in some places, both in Cascade Locks, Oregon, as I mentioned, and uh, in the Canadian case, have succeeded. Uh, those those advocates succeeded in blocking either a proposed site or the expansion of pumping to new sites um, that uh, effectively um, restricts the industry from from expansion, from getting access to new sources of spring water. Um, it's a little more difficult to sort of challenge extraction from public water supplies. But what I talk about is the other facet of the movement I've only alluded to, the other side, which I think is where some of the most fascinating and, um, and dynamic activity is going on and really an arena that uh, many more people can find uh, points of access to locally in their own communities, which is this, what I sort of lump together as the facet of the movement that I call reclaiming the tap. And this pulls together just a constellation, a panoply of efforts in uh, mainly cities, local communities, uh, efforts by uh, city officials, environmental groups, and uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, university students, public school students concerned with the growth of dependence on plastic bottled water, its environmental impact in many cases, and concerns about the privatization or the commodification of water, right? And um, city governments, for example, saying, you know, here we are, we are the providers of perfectly good, safe tap water in this community. Uh, it is, why does it make sense for us to be spending public funds purchasing bottled water for city offices? Why does it make sense for us to be putting uh, individual bottles of plastic water at the table of city councilors uh, during their council meetings? Why does it make sense to be selling this product in parks that are owned by the city? And so there's been a growth of efforts um, attempting to sort of uh, revalorize public tap water, educate communities about the high quality in the vast majority of cases of local tap water, um, sort of uh, on social marketing campaigns to, uh, to, 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 to promote the quality of uh, public tap water and the analogous. And so, so really what I'm talking about is in many cases, um, there are bans on bottled water, bans on bottled water purchasing by local government. Um, in many cases, also bans on its sale in public parks, public uh, properties. Um, New York City, for example, has, uh, and, and many other cities in the US, San Francisco, uh, others have prohibited the sale of uh, plastic bottled water, single serve bottled water in public uh, parks and other public property, which in some cases like New York turns out to be just an enormous amount of land and an enormous amount of businesses. Um, but of course, uh, when you do that, the obligatory second step is to then make sure that you are expanding access to clean, available, free uh, tap water in attractive forms across public space. And that's where I think some of the most, uh, the coolest things are happening as governments in all those cities I mentioned and cities around the world, Paris, Berlin, uh, Brussels, uh, Sydney, uh, Munich, Vancouver, Montreal, uh, Toronto, uh, the San Francisco and LA, and a, and, and a whole number of other smaller cities are basically reinvesting in public drinking water infrastructure, realizing that you've got to make water a, uh, attractive, appealing, and also easy to fill up water bottles with, that, that trend toward refillable water bottles. And you've seen, I think, just the past decade, just this explosion of the installation of public um, bottle refilling stations, hydration stations, really futuristic looking things, very, very modern. Some of them you've probably seen in airports and others uh, have both a water fountain and a bottle refilling element. And they tell you how many plastic bottles have been saved. There's a ticker that goes through. And um, a lot of these are, have filters, right? They have lead and uh, other, they filter out other chemicals or other, uh, other metals, metals. So they're, uh, they address concerns about water quality and this is really starting to uh, appear across public space, and it sort of drives then make make. I say in the book, it it really addresses the bottled water industry's 
one sometimes valid um, argument for its product, which is that it is often just far too hard or even impossible to find access to clean drinking water in public spaces. Uh, and I think this is, um, there's, there's so much more that can be done. And it's a really easy access point for folks concerned about this issue to get involved in their communities. There's also another facet to this, which is on top of these policies, um, uh, and, and I should just say that there, these efforts, these, these take back the tap or reclaiming the tap efforts are being coordinated by some international initiatives, although they're, they're, many are very, very local and grassroots and, and one-off. Um, they're increasingly being sort of pulled together into a constellation or a, or, a, or a network. One important initiative is the Blue Communities Initiative, which was begun by a group called the Council of Canadians in Canada, but it has now gone global. And they now list 77 municipalities in eight different countries, uh, in addition to schools, school districts, universities, churches, um, and other entities. Um, so uh, there are blue communities in the U.S., a couple of them, Los Angeles, Northampton, Massachusetts. So that is one. Uh, another element sort of on top of the, what is being driven by um, the public sector, uh, along with sort of pushed by a local activist, is an additional facet, which I find even more fascinating in some ways, is the refilling movement, which has become something that not just public, but nonprofit and private institutions and private businesses are increasingly joining. So you're seeing this um, explosion of uh, private businesses, for example, that are offering access to refill your bottle for free without necessarily having to, without having to make a purchase. Some of them are uh, putting up window stickers that say, you know, free tap water, and that creates a sense of uni unity and movement building. But um, more even is the, um, the spread of smartphone apps that are allowing people to sort of find these refilling spots in real time uh, in their geographic space. Uh, one big one is an app that was created by a group in, based in the UK called Refill. It's the Refill app. And they've recently gone global and they now have, I think, 300,000 plus refilling sites, including water fountains uh, globally. And, you know, I write that this, I think, ends up being kind of more than the sum of its parts. All of this together kind of creates, um, uh, I think, I think is, 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 should be looked at as kind of the reinvigoration, um, the reconstitution of a culture of public drinking water. And it makes sort of a very provocative assertion, I think, that um, access to drinking water should be ubiquitous, uh, free, um, devoid of plastic packaging um, and and universally available uh, to all and I and I think that's where some some really exciting things are going on and it's a it's a kind of a reclaiming of the public sphere um, and a, a reassertion of of the role of um, the public sector and a kind of a, a reinvigoration really of, of, of the polity because you know if you think about it drinking water is really, the one thing that local government does that is essential for life, and it is overwhelmingly provided by the public sector, by local government, almost 90% of us get drinking water from local government. And um, to abdicate uh, that to the private market is, is just deeply problematic, and, and some argue even inimical to, um, to democracy. And, and certainly know about these companies are obviously only in it for profit, and that when a good that's essential for life is provided only or mainly by the private sector or by the market, access to it is going to be based on the ability to pay, and some portion of the population will inevitably be left without. And I think what these movements are sort of asserting is that we we can't become dependent on the market uh, for access to drinking water, and that, um, that there's nothing inevitable about Sort of continued dependency on on private plastic bottled water, and and certainly taking it up, say, to the national level, um, the resources exist to fix the drinking, the deep drinking water problems that we have, and to make both tap water safe and affordable for everyone again. I think, you know, the industry may or others may sort of see this as a pipe dream, um, but it's not. I, we used to adequately fund public 
water infrastructure. And we can again. There is a um, a bill that's been sort of uh, hanging out in the U.S. Congress for several years. It's been reintroduced again. It's the Water Act, W-A-T-E-R, uh, Representative Rokana uh, and others. And it would essentially allocate um, on an ongoing basis $35 billion per year to um, rebuild public water infrastructure to deal with some of the new contaminants that are emerging concern like uh, PFAS, forever chemicals, and address the affordability problems and pull the lead pipes out of the ground. And that, the advocate that's got a huge constellation of groups behind it, hundreds and hundreds of water justice, racial justice, economic justice groups. And um, it's fascinating to think it might sound like a lot, $35 billion a year, but it is less than what people in the U.S. spend each year on bottled water which is over $40 billion. So political will really is the only impediment. And I think um, that notion that it doesn't have to be this way, that we don't have to accept living in a two-tiered drinking water society with dependence on bottled water for those uh, who are essentially the clean water have-nots and an increasing turn to tap water for the haves. We don't have to um, accept that future. I think that is... uh, that is hopeful to me uh, because I think many, many, uh, many very uh, smart and active people are pushing in that direction. Yeah, it's it's a, a really sort of inspiring end to the story, and uh, or maybe hopefully not end. Well, I've I've taken a lot of your time, uh, and so I am going to ask, what are you working on next? Well, <laughs> taking a little bit of a breather, but I, I, I am trying to work on some more uh, public-facing pieces about these issues, um, as well as a literature review piece looking at um, a little more depth at some of the, um, the current uh, literature looking at uh, the relationship between uh, a distribution of distrust in tap water, bottled water use, and bottled water spending along both um, class and racial and ethnic lines here in the U.S. I try to get a handle on that and understand it. Um, so that's that's pretty much where I'm going uh, right now. Great. Thank you. And then before we go, is there anyone you would like to shout out or any resources uh, you'd like to point our listeners to? Uh, well, uh, people can uh, find the book, uh, Unbottled, uh, the fight against plastic water and for water justice from ucpress.edu or from your favorite local independent bookstore. Um, uh, you can find my information online at danieljaffe.net. Great. Thank you so much. This, Thanks, Joshua. Yeah, this has been a, a great conversation. Uh, so this has been the new, uh, new Books and Environmental Studies uh, podcast channel on the New Books Network. Uh, we've been talking with Daniel Jaffe, the author of Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and for Water Justice.